I'm overwhelmed to see so many friends here. Almost everyone I know seems to be here, and and so many strangers also. You're very welcome. I feel that it's time I stopped giving lectures on Blake. I think I've said everything I know about Blake. And many of you know everything I've said because I've written a number of books. And many of you have come to other lectures of mine and to seminars. But Blake is always wonderful, even if we, even if you've heard it all already. So it's too late to apologize now for still being uh, talking because it's so many years I've been working on Blake since the time when I was a student in Cambridge and Keynes first published the uh, uh, collected complete poems of William Blake and I was not the last person having read these inspired words to feel this this is the voice of truth this is what the world needs and Blake who was unheard in his own lifetime is certainly the poet whose sacred books have spoken to a new generation to a new age in this country in fact it was he who used the phrase the new age and uh, Inspiration is really what his poetry is most concerned with. It must be said that inspiration is a word that has no meaning in terms of current materialist premises that assume the quantifiable material universe to comprise the whole of reality. Memory, for example, is held to be the recall of past events imprinted in some manner on the brain cells that has taken place in the world of time and space. But Plato's myth that calls the muses, the inspirers, the daughters of memory does not mean that our knowledge comes to us through experience of the physical world. Plato meant much more. He held that the soul has access to knowledge of another kind, universal or cosmic knowledge. Memory, in the platonic sense, is a process of recollection, anamnesis, unforgetting. Inspiration is, within this context, a process of recollection. In this sense, the Greek muses are the inspirers of all the arts, and each muse of a specific art. Traditionally, they are nine in number. Cleo, the muse of history, Euterpe, of flute music, Thalia, of comedy, Melpomene, of tragedy, Tepsichore, of lyric poetry and the dance, Erato, of love poetry, Polyhymnia, of heroic hymns, Urania, of astrology, Calliope, of epic poetry. They belong to the retinue of Apollo, god of inspiration, whose gifts they diversify. 
Plato in the Ion tells of the garden of the muses, whence poets draw their inspiration according to their different gifts. The muses have remained in the parlance of poets, doubtless because the inspirers have remained a reality to all poets of the imagination. Yeats speaks of his instructors who tell him, we have come to bring you images for poetry. As to the experience of inspiration, it is a state of mind in which the poet has access to knowledge and creative power not normally accessible. He is at such times possessed, as it were, by another mind, a divine inspirer, who empowers him with a clearer, greater understanding than what Plato calls the sober mind, a kind of intoxication whose symbol in Islamic poetry is wine, and indeed Dionysus or Bacchus is the Greek uh, inspirer of this of, of this kind of intoxicated inspiration. Apollo is a more orderly god. It is Bacchus, Dionysus, who is this rhapsodic inspirer. And in Islamic poetry, the, the symbol is wine. And in this in ecstatic state, this divine intoxication, the poet possesses or is possessed by a greater knowledge than that of the common daily mind, together with control of an ordering principle, rhythmic, as is music or dance, which seems to come from a higher source, whether from within the mind or from beyond the individual mind. Beyond, in either case, the common daily mind with its limited knowledge and limited powers. However explained, inspiration is a reality known to all poets of the imagination and in whose absence no great poetry can be written. Uh, am I speaking loud enough? Can you hear me at the back? Yes. You can. Thank you. Blake's account of his great painting, A Vision of the Last Judgment, contains the fullest and clearest account of the nature of inspiration known to me, certainly the fullest by any English poet. Blake makes Plato his starting point, and although he finds in Plato a matter of disagreement, he himself is only extending Plato's teaching. And this is Blake. The last judgment is not fable or allegory, but vision. Fable or allegory are a totally distinct and inferior kind of poetry. Vision or imagination is a representation of what eternally exists, really and unchangeably. Fable or allegory is formed by the daughters of memory. Imagination is surrounded by the daughters of inspiration. When Blake writes, imagination has nothing to do with memory, he is affirming the creative power of imagination itself, which does not depend on events of past personal or collective experience of outer events in times and places of this world. <coughs> Here he is misrepresenting, surely, Plato, whose mnemosyne is recollection of things eternal in the mind. But Blake's distinction does illustrate an essential poet point, that the muses are daughters of inspiration and their garden not to be found in this world. 
What those eternal things displayed by the daughters of inspiration may be is not possible to define, but what it is not, Blake clearly tells us. Eternal identity is one thing, and corporeal vegetation is another thing. Blake's daughters of inspiration are in the aggregate called Jerusalem, who is, following the book of Revelation, the bride of Christ. In Blake's term, Jesus is the imagination and Jerusalem the soul, bride of the imagination. Plato also holds the archetypal order to be prior to the world of the soul. He, Plato calls intellect the true man, whereas for Blake, imagination is the true man. Imagination is the human existence itself, and thus, in Blake's terms, the divine humanity. And I quote, this world of imagination is the world of eternity. It is the divine bosom into which we shall all go after the death of the vegetated body. This world of imagination is infinite and eternal, whereas the world of generation or vegetation <coughs> is finite and temporal. There exists in that eternal world the permanent realities of everything which we see reflected in this vegetable glass of nature. All things are comprehended in their eternal forms in the divine body of the Savior, the true vine of eternity, the human imagination. <coughs> Here, Blake is at once following Plato and going beyond him. It is Plato who describes time as a moving image of eternity. But Plato's eternal world is not explicitly located, as for Blake, within man himself, as the divine humanity, the divine bosom, Jesus, the imagination. Plato, too, held man to be immortal, and that at death we return to the eternal world whence we came. But for Blake, imagination is already, in this life, accessible at all times, here and now, in every present, the source of inspiration whenever we raise our minds to those inner regions. The mortal senses do not give knowledge, only information, and Blake concludes his account of a vision of the last judgment with the words, I question not my corporeal or vegetable eye any more than I would question a window concerning a sight. I look through it and not with it. The image of looking through not with the eye is itself taken from Plato. Blake, however, concedes that fable or allegory is seldom without some vision. Pilgrim's progress is full of it, the Greek poets the same, but allegory and vision ought to be known as two distinct things and so called for the sake of eternal life. Eternal life, for though on earth see, things seem permanent, they are less permanent than a shadow, as we all know too well. 
Without Plato, Blake could not have written on the Daughters of Inspiration. He had read Plato in the translations of Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, whom he had known at one time, and whose works influenced him deeply throughout his life, from the early songs of experience <coughs> to one of his latest paintings, the Arlington Court Tempera, which was an illustration of the Neoplatonic Porphyry's work on the Cave of the Nymphs. However, Blake makes one perhaps just criticism of Plato in his account of the vision of the Last Judgment. Plato has made Socrates say that poets and prophets do not know or understand what they write or utter. This is a most pernicious falsehood. If they do not, pray is an inferior kind to be called knowing. Plato confutes himself. Plato in the Ion does indeed say that poets could not compose their poems when in their sober minds, and, and the theme of poetic intoxication recurs again and again from the Sufi poets to Keats and W.B. Yeats, Blake's first editor and greatest devotee. Yeats, in All Souls' Night, places on his table two long glasses brimmed with muscatel in his ceremonious summoning of the ghosts of dead friends. Because I have a marvellous thing to say, a certain marvellous thing none but the living mock, though not for sober ear. Blake too held that in a state of inspiration the poet knows more, not less, than when in his sober mind. He understands inspiration as a state of expanded consciousness in which the finite individual enters the universal mind of the imagination. And I quote, Then those in great eternity... <coughs> Met, <coughs> met in the council of God. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'll try again. Then those in great eternity met in the council of God as one man. For contracting their exalted senses, they behold multitude, or expanding, behold as one. As one man, all the universal family, and that one man, they call Jesus the Christ, and they in him, and he in them, live in perfect harmony in Eden, the land of life, consulting as one man above the mountain of Snowdon sublime. All spiritual traditions recognize four levels or worlds, Platonic, Vedic, Kabbalist, Buddhist, and the four appear to belong to the nature of things in the mental worlds. Blake, who takes his term from Swedenborg, himself describes these four worlds, of which Eden, the land of life, is the highest. Now I have fourfold vision, see, and a fourfold vision is given to me, fourfold in my supreme delight, and threefold in soft Beulah's night, and twofold always. May God us keep from single vision and Newton's sleep.
Single vision and Newton's sleep perfectly describe the materialist mentality which in our own society lays claim to representing the total sum of knowledge, a claim supported, it is said, by natural science. This claim Blake calls sleep since it precludes the expanded consciousness which he himself and all spiritual traditions acknowledge. Albion, the collective being of the English nation, Blake declares, declares repeatedly, is sunk in deadly sleep, and his prophetic message to his nation is not to repent, but to awake to ever-present realities of imagination. To Plato and all other mystical traditions, the higher worlds are causal in relation to the lower, and the world of matter the effect of higher causes. A teaching evolutionary scientific theory has reversed, making mind and spirit a product of material causes, a view Blake denies when he writes, Every natural effect has a spiritual cause and not a natural. A natural cause only seems. <clears throat> Eden is called the land of life because life itself is the originator. Beulah is the world of soul or love, psyche, since Beulah is a biblical symbol for the married state. Nature itself is twofold because a living world, not a lifeless mechanism as Newton conceived the universe. This lifeless world Blake calls Alro, a world outside existence, which is the true metaphysical hell. For Blake, Milton was the supreme poet of inspiration. His prophetic poem entitled Milton is on the theme of inspiration and Milton is in this poem described as the inspired man. Milton was at the same time, according to Blake, less than true to his own imagination and in the marriage of heaven and hell, <coughs> 1790, Blake puts his case against Milton which was to be the theme of the, of the prophetic book uh, uh, entitled Milton, 1804 to 1808. Besides the Bible, Milton is from the outset probably the most important influence on Blake. Milton was England's supreme mythological poet, and Blake was in this respect his only successor before Coleridge and Shelley. Milton, of course, sees heaven and hell in the accepted Christian terms of irreconcilable states of good and evil, and Blake in The Tiger already asks the question, did he who make the, made the lamb make thee? No answer is given, but who can read these two poems of contrary states and not recognize the tiger as a glorious beast, while the lamb, who is called by his name, is insipid in comparison? The answer Blake does not give in The Tiger is stated plainly in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and that marriage may be seen as the central theme of all Blake's subsequent work. Blake is calling in question not only Milton, but his other great influential ma ma master Swedenborg, and indeed the Christian Church as such. 
Blake's discernment that there is a prince higher than either good or evil, that neither the just nor the wicked are in the supreme state, is his great contribution. Good and evil are contraries without which there is no progression. They are necessary to human existence, which possesses wholeness only within the higher principle of imagination. An eternal hell and an eternal heaven have from the first been a part of Christian mythology. Dante's Divine Comedy is based on this orthodox Catholic theology, no less than is Milton's Protestant epic. Blake's last work, unfinished at the time of his death, was his splendid series of illustrations to Dante, of whom he wrote, Dante saw devils where I saw none. One of the earlier plates of the marriage of heaven and hell illustrates Dante's canto on Ugolino and his sons in prison. And in another version, Blake illustrates the same theme, but with the addition of two angels bending over the sufferers with sheltering wings. It seems strange that eternal hell remains so long an unquestioned article of Christian faith. The Buddhist cosmology also includes hells, but these are not eternal, and Blake too understood that it is necessary to, to distinguish between individuals and the states through which men travel. In his account of the vision of the last judgment, in which all these quotations virtually are, he writes, man passes on, but states remain forever. He passes through them like a traveler who may as well suppose that the places he has passed through exist no more, as a man may suppose that the states he has passed through exist no more. Everything is eternal. Satan is a state, but imagination is not a state. It is the human existence itself. Spirituality, Blake understood, has nothing to do with judgmental morality and everything to do with the imagination. In The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, Blake has found his radical solution to the traditional conf Christian confrontation of good and evil. These are replaced by the contraries of reason and energy, as he states in his manifesto. Without contraries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. There follows an argument spoken in The Voice of the Devil. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. One, that man has two real existing principles, viz. a body and a soul. Two, that energy called evil is alone from the body and that reason called good is alone from the soul. Three, that God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. But the following contraries to these are true. One, man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in this age. Two, Energy is the only life and is from the body, and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Three, 
Energy is eternal delight. The marriage of heaven and hell, part aphorism, part satire, is directed in particular against Swedenborg, whose work Heaven and Hell Blake had read about 1790. Two other works of Swedenborg he had read at about the same time, The Wisdom of Angels Concerning Divine Love and Divine Wisdom, and The Wisdom of Angels Concerning Divine Providence. The marriage of heaven and hell is thought to have been etched between 1790 and 93, while Swedenborg was fresh in his mind. It is likely that Blake's family were Swedenborgians, and it is on the record that Blake and his wife, and Blake's friend Flaxman and his wife, were early signatories of the Swedenborgian Society's manifesto in the year 1789. Blake was a lifelong admirer of Swedenborg, and his much-discussed system is essentially that of Swedenborg, whom he praised to the diarist Crabbe Robinson during his last years. At the same time, he differed from Swedenborg in one important essential. Swedenborg follows the received Christian teaching that good and evil, heaven and hell, are forever separate, and Blake's criticism of his admired teacher is to the point. He writes, I have always found that angels have the vanity to speak of themselves as the only wise. This they do with a confident insonance sprouting from systematic reasoning. Thus, Swedenborg boasts that what he writes is new, though it is only the contents or index of already published books. Now here a plain fact. Swedenborg has not written one new truth now here another, he has written all the old falsehoods. Blake extended this criticism of Swedenborg in the poem Milton, the old falsehood for which he specially blamed his admired master is precisely his judgmental morality. Of all the sins, Blake most detested self-righteousness and the cruel virtues of the natural heart. And he writes, O Swedenborg, strongest of men, the Samson shorn by the churches, showing the transgressors in hell, the proud warriors in heaven, heaven as a punisher, hell as one under punishment. Blake knew that he himself had understood one new truth, the truth of imagination, which is above the contraries. The other great work on the theme of heaven and hell is, of course, Paradise Lost, and the marriage of heaven and hell. Uh, Blake having, and in the marriage of heaven and hell, Blake, having stated his new truth, comes at once to Milton, having declared that energy is eternal delight. He continues, those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained, and the restrainer reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. And being restrained, it by degrees becomes passive till it is only the shadow of desire. The history of this is written in Paradise Lost, and the governor or reason is called Messiah, and the original archangel or possessor of the command of the heavenly host is called the devil or Satan, and his children are called sin and death. But in the book of Job, 
Milton's Messiah is called Satan. For his, this history has been adopted by both parties. It indeed appeared to reason as if desire was cast out, but the devil's account is that the Messiah fell and formed a heaven of what he stole from the abyss. This is shown in the gospel where he prays to the Father to send the comforter or desire that reason may have ideas to build on, the Jehovah of the Bible being no other than the devil, he who dwells in flaming fire. Know that after Christ's death he became Jehovah, but in Milton the Father is destiny, the Son ratio of the five senses, and the Holy Ghost a vacuum. And here Blake expresses what many have felt about Milton's poem. Note, the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God, and at liberty when of devils and hell, is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. Blake's series of 22 engravings of the Book of Job is the last of his series on the primacy of the imagination. In that work, Blake takes Job's error to be self-righteousness, pleading his righteousness and denying all the arguments of his friends that since he is suffering, he must at some time have broken some law. The central figure in Blake's reading of the book is Elihu, who speaks not by the book, but from the imagination. Elihu has remained silent from deference to the age and experience of Job's friends. And he says, days should speak, and multitude of years teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. Elihu claims to speak on God's behalf, to bring his knowledge from afar, that he who is perfect in knowledge is with thee. God is not a moralist, but a mystery, who is nevertheless present, and is that spirit in man wiser than experience. I have written elsewhere on the theme of Blake's Job illustrations, which are his last word on the redemptive power of imagination from the reasoner, who is also the accuser, whose ten commandments Blake challenged. Imagination is the spirit in man who is the inspiration of the Almighty. The marriage of heaven and hell ends with the words of the devil who declared that Jesus broke all the Ten Commandments and concludes, I tell you, no virtue can exist without breaking these Ten Commandments. Jesus was all virtue and acted from impulse, not from rules. The argument against Milton outlined in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, Blake extended into the mythological prophetic poem Milton, written some 15 years later between 1804 and 1808. Milton's legalistic morality notwithstanding, Blake took him as the type of the inspired man. And indeed, Milton opens Paradise Lost with an invocation of his heavenly muse. He uses the Greek word, but rather ostentatiously gives her a biblical context, not a classical one. 
Sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed, or if Zion's hill delight thee more, and Silo's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid. The revelation of God through Moses came while the Israelites were living on Mount Horeb. The Ten Commandments were delivered on Sinai, and Zion is the holy hill of Israel, where David the poet king founded his city. Having in this way at once invoked the muse and dissociated himself from the classical tradition, Milton goes on to invoke the Holy Spirit, the God within, which would have pleased Blake. And chiefly thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest, thou from the first wast present. The Holy Spirit is timeless and omniscient, a theme taken up again in Paradise Regained, where Jesus claims the same omniscience. Tempted by Satan to study the works of the philosophers, Jesus, like Elihu refuting the wisdom of experience in the book of Job, rejects learning in the name of inspiration. Think not but that I know these things, or think I know them not. Not, therefore, am I short of knowing what I ought. He who receives light from above, from the fountain of light, no other doctrine needs, though granted true. Blake's divine humanity is not the historical Jesus, but the universal Christ, Jesus the imagination. The name and conception is taken from Swedenborg, whose grand man of the heavens is the collective being of all humankind. The passage already cited about the one man delivers, derives ultimately from the Jewish mystical tradition of Adam, Adam Kadmon. It has recently been discovered that Swedenborg was on close terms with members of a, a millenarist Jewish community in London, and that is clearly where Blake got the idea of the, of the divine human who is one in many and many in one. It goes straight back to, to this traditional source through Swedenborg. I didn't discover that when I was writing my book on Blake, and I much regret it, but I'm glad that someone else has done so. So Blake's poem Milton opens with an invocation of the muse that deliberately recalls Milton's opening invocation to Paradise Lost, but with differences. This is Blake. Daughters of Beulah, muses who inspire the poet's song, come into my hand by your mild power descending down the nerves of my right arm from out the portals of my brain, where by your ministry the eternal great humanity divine planted his paradise, and in it called the spectres of the dead to take sweet forms in likeness of himself. 
This is a long way from Milton, who, although he invokes the inner light of the Holy Spirit, sees Adam as essentially a fallen being, a creature made by God, but very far from Blake's understanding of imagination as the human eternal being in every man, the all in man. Man is all imagination. God is man and exists in us and we in him. In an annotation to Berkeley's Cyrus, in which Berkeley says that Plato and Aristotle considered God as abstracted and distinct from the natural world, but the Egyptians considered God and nature as making one whole, Blake comments, they also considered God as abstract or distinct from the imaginative world, but Jesus, as also Abraham and David, considered God as man in the spiritual or imaginative imaginative vision. Jesus considered imagination to be the real man. In a letter to William Haley in 1803, Blake expressed a thought very critical of the kind of guilt-written Christianity that sees man as a fallen creature. Haley was Blake's uh, patron. He was a, a well-known poet of the time. He didn't understand Blake at all. Some say that happiness is not good for mortals, but they ought to be answered that sorrow is not fit for immortals and is utterly useless to anyone. Blake's absolute affirmation of the divinity of the imagination, Jesus is God, is an insight that brings him close to the Vedic understanding of the divine self in all created beings and in man, known as Satchitananda, being consciousness bliss. Blake also understood that bliss belongs to the very nature of being and consciousness, to the imagination, inseparable from them and from life itself. And Blake uses the words bliss and delight, which are no part of the Christian view of a fallen humanity in a fallen world. Blake understood that energy is eternal delight and wrote, Arise, you little glancing wings, and drink your bliss, for everything that lives is holy. Such a thought in relation to the created world is very far from the Christian religion, but very much part of the Vedic tradition. In order to understand the mythological narrative which, with which Milton opens, Milton's name does not appear before plate 14, we must go back to the argument outlined in the marriage of heaven and hell. Milton, as we have seen, invoked his heavenly muse from Horeb, Sinai, and Zion, thus declaring his adherence to the Protestant cause. Blake's muses are the daughters of Beulah, the world of mild, moony luster in soft sexual delusions of varied beauty. Blake knew, as did Dante, that the erotic opens the doors of the imagination. It was Dante to whom, in a dream, love said, Ego Dominus Tuus, I am your Lord. Blake, in his poem, summons Milton back after a hundred years, to redeem his feminine emanations, his three wives and three daughters, and to submit himself to the divine human, the imagination. There follows an account of the binding of Eurizia in the rational mind, imprisoned stage by stage in the world of the five senses. 
Loss, who is time and enithamon, space, give embodied forms to all born into the created world, and in the fullness of time, Urizen is born as Satan, prince of the starry wheels, the mills of Satan, the Newtonian universe of which Satan Urizen is the creator, a world cut off from great eternity, the world of life. Loss addresses Satan as the author of the Newtonian universe, in which, by and large, of course, we are still living, because although, in fact, um, there has since been Einstein and even other thinkers since Einstein, essentially we are, or rather the culture of this country, is still a material universe of which mind is only the spectator, that reality is out there. Uh, of course, C.G. Jung has also challenged that very much. I know some of you tonight are students of Jung. So Blake writes, O Satan, my youngest born, prince of the starry wheels, art thou not Newton's Pantocrator, weaving the woof of Locke? To mortals thy mill seem everything, and the horses of Shaddai, a scheme of human conduct invisible and incomprehensible. Get thee to thy labors at the mills, and leave me to my wrath. Satan, who is reason confined to the world of the five senses, protests against the invisible and incomprehensible law that guides the harrow of the Almighty in the hands of Palamabron. Since the mechanistic Newtonian universe, the dark satanic mills Blake calls eternal death, is the work of reason, we must conclude that Palamabron, who guides the harrow of the Almighty, is the contrary principle of energy or desire, who in the marriage of heaven and hell is called eternal delight, agent of the imagination, the world of life. Satan's, reason's world, is mathematical proportion of length, breadth, and height. Palamon bronze is described as displaying naked beauty with flute and harp and song. There follows a lament of the world of the five senses as Satan begins to build his mills and ovens and cauldrons where the foundations of Jerusalem, the city of God, are laid in ruins. Blake saw the Industrial Revolution as the work of Satan's rationalistic, mechanistic system and from England, where it originated, the spectre of Albion frowns over the nations in glory and war. All things begin and end in Albion's ancient, druid, rocky shore. But now the starry heavens are fled from the mighty limbs of Albion. The starry heavens have been cut off from life in a void outside existence. They have fled from the body of Albion, that is to say his imagination, because the rational mind of Satan creates a space-time world 
outside mind and thought, where the natural world and all its creatures is supposed to exist in its own right. This is a lifeless world of objects, where the morning stars no longer sing together and the animals wander away from man. Nature has been torn apart from imagination, and Blake saw the disastrous results of creating this lifeless world. Though it appears without, it is within in your imagination, living imagination. Plotinus, known to Blake through Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, argues strongly that matter has no substantial existence apart from, which, from mind which perceives it. And Blake asks, when shall Jerusalem return and overspread all the nations? It was the spiritual labor of his life to build Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land, for Blake was a true patriot of the England of the imagination. Meanwhile, <coughs> Satan sets about taking over and ordering the world according to reason, with incomparable mildness and most endearing love, he pleads with loss, the time spirit, to give him Palamabron's station, truly believing in his rational system, and after repeated entreaties, loss gave him the harrow of the Almighty, alas, blamable. Thus Satan labored all day, a day is a thousand years, at the end of which the horses of the harrow and the gnomes were maddened with tormenting fury. Palamabrom accuses Satan of self-imposition. You know Satan's mildness and his self-imposition, seeming a brother, being a tyrant, even him thinking himself a brother, while he is murdering the just. Satan denies that he is responsible for the fury of the servants of Panama Bronze Harrow, believing as he does in the supremacy of reason. Meanwhile, Palamabron has been given the guidance of the mills of Satan, and when each returns to his proper place, Satan finds the servants of the mills drunken with wine and dancing wild with shouts and Palamabron's songs rending the forest green with echoing confusion. At this point, Enithamon, who creates spaces, formed a space for Satan and Michael and the poor infected. Satan and Michael are the eternal contraries of good and evil as understood in the world of morality. Panamabrom is in this context the contrary of both alike, good and evil being two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Palamabron is not of the moral order at all. This space created by Enitharmon is the same of which it is said in the marriage of heaven and hell that the Messiah fell and formed a heaven of what he stole from the abyss. Milton's Messiah, according to Blake, being a ratio of the five senses. As Satan's power increases in this world, usurping the laws of life, he creates in its place the moral law. He created seven deadly sins, drawing out his infernal scroll of moral laws and cruel punishments upon the clouds of Jehovah to pervert the divine voice in its entrance to the earth. 
And Satan vibrated in the immensity of the space, limited to those without, but infinite to those within. It fell down, closing loss from eternity in Albion's cliffs, a mighty fiend against the divine humanity, mastering to war. Thus from reason's mild beginnings grows this horrendous world, cut off from the divine vision of imagination. It is into this space that in the fullness of time Jesus the imagination is born, who died as a reprobate. He was punished as a transgressor. And Blake calls imagination the savior, which in terms of his mythology is to say that imagination saves from the cruel tyranny of Satan the reasoner. The transgressor is the savior, for our virtues of cruel goodness have deserved eternal death. We should remember that in Blake's London, the gallows at Tyburn, where mere boys were hanged to what we would now regard as minor offenses, had not yet been replaced by the innocuous marble arch. At this point, the voice of the bard is heard for the first time, and his words are, Pity and love are too venerable for the imputation of guilt. Others said, if it is true, if the acts have been performed, let the bard himself witness. Whence had thou this terrible song? And the bard replied, I am inspired. I know it is truth. For I sing according to the inspiration of the poetic genius who is the all-protecting divine humanity. At this point, Milton makes his en en entry. Recalled by Blake after a hundred years, <coughs> Milton undertakes to go to eternal death, the death of the selfhood and the redemption of his feminine emanation, saying, what do I hear before the judgment without my emanation? With the daughters of memory and not with the daughters of inspiration. I in my selfhood am that Satan, I am that evil one. He is my spectre. In my obedience to loose him from my hells, it, to loose him from my hells, to claim the hells, my furnaces, I go to eternal death. The remaining 26 pages of the poem, among the most beautiful Blake ever wrote, describe various aspects of the triumph of imagination over the world of the human selfhood cut off from the divine humanity within. Milton, although generated in the vegetated world under the couch of death, is nevertheless inspired by the muses who feed him with food of Eden. Blake describes poetic inspiration in these terms. Himself, his real and immortal self was, as appeared to those who dwell in immortality, as one sleeping on a couch of gold, and those in immortality gave forth their emanations like females of sweet beauty to guard round him and to feed his lips with food of Eden in his cold and dim repose. But to himself he seemed a wanderer lost in dreary night. 
And so it must often seem to men of inspired genius in this world, where the vision of higher worlds is obscured and called in question in the world where Satan the reasoner rules. In the world of generation, Satan is the limit of opacity, and Adam the natural man the limit of contraction. And to Milton, in this world, what was underneath soon seemed above. A cloudy heaven mingled with stormy seas in loudest ruin, as Milton fell into the sea of time and space. Loth, agent of time, calls his sons to the harvest and vintage of the completed time world of 6,000 years, as imagination unveils the real world of eternity. Agents of that epiphany are the four arts, poetry, painting, music, and architecture, which are the four faces of man. Blake describes how the great edifice of time is built up, and the passage concludes with an unveiling of the eternal. Every time less than the pulsation of the artery is equal in its period and value to 6,000 years. For in this period the poet's work is done, and all the great events of time start forth and are conceived in such a period, within a moment, a pulsation of the artery. The eternal world is timeless, and the inspiration comes always from that ever-present world by what Blake calls inspiration, and Plato anamnesis, remembering not the time world or its history, but remembering ever-present eternity of imagination. One thinks of Dante's conception of the divine comedy as a whole, but whose composition occupied many years, or of Mozart, whose music came to him as a single whole, uh, but had to be written out at length over, uh, and laboriously, and of Blake himself, who in a letter to his friend and patron Thomas Butts describes his own composition of his poem Milton, for I have in these three years composed an immense number of verses on one grand theme, similar to Homer's Iliad or Milton's Paradise Lost, the persons and machinery entirely new to the inhabitants of earth, some of the persons excepted. I have written this poem from immediate dictation, twelve or sometimes twenty or thirty lines at a time, without premeditation, and even against my will. The time it has taken in writing was thus rendered non-existence, and an immense poem exists which seems the labor of a long life, all produced without labor or study. Yeats, Blake's editor and successor in the imaginative tradition, describes genius as a crisis that at certain moments unites the sleeping and the waking mind, which is precisely what Blake himself means by the expanding of man's infinite senses, which he blames Plato for not calling knowledge, praise an inferior kind to be called knowing. It is inspiration that discovers in a moment ever-present eternity, whereas the time world of loss is the labor of 6,000 years. But 
There is a moment in each day that Satan cannot find, nor can his watch fiends find it, but the industrious find this moment, and it multiply, and when it once is found, it renovates each moment of the day, if rightly placed. Of loss, creator of time, Blake's writes, he is the spirit of prophecy, the ever-apparent Elias, Time is the mercy of eternity. Without time's swiftness, which is the swiftest of all things, all eternal torment, all the gods of the kingdoms of earth labor in losses' halls. Every one is a fallen son of the spirit of prophecy. As the eternal man awakes from the opaque and contracted consciousness of natural vegetated mankind in the satanic world of the selfhood, so the splendor of the world unfolds in an epiphany, in its full reality, from the minute to the great, and I cannot resist quoting Blake's inspired words in full. Thou seest the gorgeous clothed flies that dance and sport in summer upon the sunny brooks and meadows. Every one the dance knows in its intricate mazes of delight artful to weave, each one to sound his instrument of music in the dance, to touch each other and recede, to cross and change and return. These are the children of loss. Thou seest the trees on mountains, the wind blows heavy, loud they thunder through the darksome sky, uttering prophecies and speaking instructive words through the sons of man. These are the sons of loss, these the visions of eternity, but we see only, as it were, the hem of their garments when with our vegetable eyes we view these wondrous visions. For Blake, the world of imagination is not a world of dreams and fantasies, but this world, seen with the eyes of imagination, or as he succinctly puts it in the marriage of heaven and hell, a fool sees not the same tree as a wise man sees, and the wise man is the man of imagination. This same thought Blake sets forth in, at length to Dr. Trussler, a patron who objected that Blake's visions of fancy are not to be found in this world. And Blake replied, I feel that a man may be happy in this world, and I know that this world is a world of imagination and vision. I see everything I paint in this world, but everybody does not see alike. To the eyes of a miser, a guinea is more beautiful than the sun, and a bag worn with the use of money has more beautiful proportions than a vine filled with grapes. The tree which moves some to tears of joy is in the eyes of others only a green thing that stands in the way. Some see nature all ridicule and deformity, and by these I shall not regulate my proportions. And some scarce see nature at all, but to the eyes of the man of imagination, nature is imagination itself. As a man is, so he sees. As the eye is formed, such are its powers. You certainly mistake when you say that the visions of fancy are not to be found in this world. To me, this world is one continued vision of fancy or imagination.
The poem Milton is full of descriptions of the natural world which is seen by the eye of imagination, and it concludes with Milton in terrible majesty, casting off the rational Satan in the name of inspiration. And this is Blake. The negation is the specter, the reasoning power in man, this is a false body, an incrustation over my immortal spirit, a selfhood which must be cut off and annihilated always. To cleanse the face of my spirit by self-examination, to bathe in the waters of life, to wash off the not-human, I come in self-annihilation in the grandeur of inspiration, to cast off rational demonstration by faith in the Saviour, to cast off the rotten rags of memory by inspiration, to cast off Bacon, Locke, and Newton from Albion's covering, to take off his filthy garments and clothe him with imagination, to cast aside from poetry all that is not inspiration, that it no longer dare to mock with the aspersion of madness cast on the inspired by the tame finisher of paltry blots, indefinite or paltry rhymes or paltry harmonies, who creeps into state government like a caterpillar to destroy, to cast off the idiot questioner who is always questioning but never capable of answering, who sits with a sly grin, silent plotting when to question like a thief in a cave, who publishes doubt and calls it knowledge, whose science is despair, whose pretense to knowledge is envy, his sole science is to destroy the wisdom of ages to gratify ravenous envy that ranges round him like a wolf day and night without rest. He smiles with condescension, he talks Talks of benevolence and virtue, and those who act with benevolence and virtue, they murder time on time. These are the destroyers of Jerusalem. These are the murderers of Jesus, who deny the faith and mock at eternal life, who pretend to poetry that they may destroy imagination by imitation of nature's images drawn from the remembrance. Unknown during his lifetime to all but a few, Blake's proclamation of the supremacy of the imagination has been heard in this century by a generation who have understood and responded to his vision of a marriage of heaven and hell. It is a vision on which there is no going back. Thank you. Enlightenment had to pass through the hells. 
Dante, before his transfiguration, had to pass through the hells. And George MacDonald, the follower of William Law, in the belief of universal redemption, wrote a novel called Lilith, and he couldn't answer the question in the end. It all depended on Lilith, whether she could open her hand. I always think, when I read The Marriage of Heaven and Earth, of Hiroshima or the Holocaust, and whether you could take that book into Gusen or Mauthausen, and what the response would be. I recently read what I believe is the only diary to have been brought out of the Holocaust. It was written in Gusen by an Italian painter, Aldo Carti. And the great agreement that he would have found with Blake was not so much the reasonings of the marriage of heaven and hell, but the gospel of eternal forgiveness. The only thing that brought Aldo Carpi through the horror of Gusen was the forgiveness of his neighbour. But what the one that inflicts the wound, who inflicts the pain, who inflicts the torment, who destroys the innocence of a child. I think it's here that I hope in the afterlife I may have a jolly good argument with William Blake. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you John. May I just say that uh, forgiveness is the great virtue that Blake attributes to Christianity, in fact, to Jesus, the imagination, who does forgive, whereas moral virtue of reason is, is judgmental. Uh, the imagination is all forgiving. And uh, this is very much in one of his last poems, the... Uh, it's called The Everlasting Gospel, isn't it, that series of... Uh, and he says, what, what is it that Jesus taught that Plato and Cicero did not write? And he, and he says, uh, when Jesus said, thy sins are all forgiven thee, that was the great teaching of Jesus in the sense of the imagination, you see. When you, you must remember always that when Blake writes Jesus. He is speaking of the eternal Christ, the, 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 the true man, the humanity that is the deepest, the deepest presence in every human being. I don't know whether there are any questions. Um, could I just ask you, Kathleen, did you say um, that at death we were going to the eternal imagination? The dente? That at death we were going to the eternal imagination. That is what Blake believed, yes. yes. He did say that. Mm. The divine bosom in, into which we shall all go after the death of this mortal body. That is what Blake believed. But he also believed imagination was accessible to us now. We don't have to wait. In, and of course in the Vedic teaching it says unless you reach it now you won't reach it hereafter. We have to reach it now. But to Blake, it was present. It was he saw the world continually. 
in that light. Could you say what he, you think he meant by the aphorism, road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom? I think he meant just that. <laughs> and we do learn from experience. We learn tremendously from our mistakes. I like to think that uh, my mis mistakes have that justification, at least that I did learn by them. <laughs> yes. Anyway, he was speaking in this... This was an early work, and, and he was speaking in praise of energy, delight, uh, the joy of of, uh, of of letting the spirit just carry one. It it's a very Dionysiac work, the marriage of heaven and hell, uh, Dionysiac rather than Apollonian, and uh, Blake was very much in that mood at that time. Is it true that he intended that in later years? Do you think? Yes, but in his later years, in 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 fact the work from which I've been quoting a good deal, he did say that Plato and some of the, oh, who is it? some of the ancient Greeks, and also Paine and Mary Wollstonecraft and all these people, said, let us live in paradise and liberty. You may do so in spirit, but not in, uh, not in the flesh. Yes. While we live in the world of mortality, we must suffer. And he'd seen them all, you know. He'd seen Mary Wollstonecraft, whom he loved very much, and wrote a poem about her, um, suffer terribly. She was abandoned by her first lover, Imlay, and then she married Godwin and died in childbirth, uh, bearing Mary Shelley. And then Mary and Shelley, uh, in the, I mean... Uh, um, she was Mary Shelley, wasn't she? They too had their, their suffering at the, in the hands of this world, and of course Byron and Blake saw it all. He he saw that uh, that living by the imagination in this world is very is impossible. That those who do so may well in terms of natural life destroy themselves but nevertheless I think the road to excess he would still have probably said it in his old age Cathy may I ask a question do you not feel there's far more of Jakob Werner in the last great prophetic books of Blake that Sweden brought I feel that the aurora, for example, is, is lingering behind or standing behind the book of Milton. Whereas in the, towards the end of his life, Swedenborg is not, is not so valued in, in Blake's judgment as, as the vision of Burma. It never was. He said that Burma was greater than Swedenborg, uh, but he—I mean, his system is certainly Swedenborgian. Uh, you probably know more about that than I do, John. I've always found Burma very difficult to understand, but Blake certainly gave Burma the highest place. Burma and Paracelsus, he places very high, and. Uh, you probably know more about the presence of Burma in Blake than I do, because, as I say, I always found him extremely difficult. I, I, my work was mainly on the uh, the Neoplatonic contribution to Blake, was on uh, contribution of Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, and the and the Plotinian contribution. But I know that 
those who understand and know Burma well would would agree with you that there, it is there. Above all, in that section in Milton, where there's the unfolding of consciousness, of the zones, etc., that one I found um, when I was reading the Aurora, as if Blake had read the same passages that I was reading. Is that the opening of centers? Is that the the earth opens like a flower from the center? The centers of the birth of life. Yes, I, I, I know that is, that is straight from Burma, isn't it? The opening of the centers of the birth of life, and they open like flowers, yes. But uh, as I say, I must leave that to you. I noticed, I'm uh, very interested to hear that uh, Blake criticized Plato for saying that the poets uh, uh, were in a state of not knowing. Whereas Blake said yes. he was a state of greater knowing. And yes. then later on, you were saying that the poem Milton was uh, created almost uh, by what was it, immediate dictation. And I thought, oh, what's the relationship there? Did, was Blake actually then uh, sort of mediating something that he wasn't aware of? Or was there a higher knowledge present there? Is that, I, I, I wonder what the relationship was. Uh, oh. Well, I, I think that uh, Blake probably misinterpreted Plato, who uh, did in fact uh, regard intellect as the higher knowledge. He called it anamnesis, unforgetting, uh, as it were, he's, Plato sees mortal man in a state of forgetfulness of his own higher nature or higher worlds, however you like to put it. And that knowledge is, he said, you can't know anything. That you, you can only remember what you already know. This was Plato's teaching. And you may remember he took a slave boy who knew nothing and by a series of Socratic questions elicited from him a proof of a mathematical theory and said, there you are, you see this boy knows it all the time. And this is Plato's idea of knowledge, that it is innate and that we can only know what we already is innate in us. And it's really, uh, Blake was, I think, misjudging Plato, who was, when he speaks of the daughters of memory, was not talking about historic memory. He was talking about uh, anamnesis. Um, was that your question? I'm rather deaf. I hope I heard you correctly. I think I was more interested in um, the, uh, what... I, I thought you were saying that Blake's uh, idea of inspired poetry was um, one of expanded consciousness. Yes, it was. Whereas Plato, you suggested, was one of, uh, as it were, <coughs> intoxication, losing oneself, which is a different kind of consciousness. And then writing Milton, uh, I, 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 I wondered whether Blake was not, in a sense, uh, uh, inspired in, in a sense of uh, almost being taken out of himself. Oh, he was. He, he was indeed, but but he would regard that inspired state as, as a state of expanded knowledge, that you knew more in that state. I think any any poet would, would agree that at the time you were writing a poem, somehow you know more than you do when you 
are not writing a poem. And there is in the Bhagavad Gita, which of course is the teaching of the Lord Krishna to Arjuna, uh, he, it's, it's this long inspired, I forget how many chapters, 26 or whatever they are, in the middle of the, of the great epic of the Mahabharata. And Arjuna asks him at a later time in the poem, he says, I've rather forgotten what you said about that. Do you mind telling me again? And Krishna says, I can't. He said, I was inspired at that time. I can't tell you now. <laughs> and I think that inspiration is of that kind. It makes you think that Plato has simply never met a poet who was articulate about his inspiration, Yes, but I think we all know what inspiration is because it isn't only in poetry, it's in all the arts, it's in mathematics, it's in science, it's anything whatsoever. Um, Stephen, how long have we? Not very long. Not very long. Right. How many more questions? Any more? One more question. Yeah. One more. Did you say that the world is waking up to the visions of William Blake and the prophecy? imagination is the world waking up yes I think so I think that Blake came with a tremendous revelation it's uh, the marriage of heaven and hell especially is one of the the great books of the of the new age people I forget that some years ago now uh, I think it is waking up to Blake I think he's enormously read and and that this is a moment when the West is is ready to see the flaws in materialist uh, ideologies, and of course Blake is such a lucid uh, exponent of the alternative. Uh, he's only obscure in the sense that his ideas come as a shock because they really are turning the uh, materialist orthodoxy on its head. But when you see that it needs to be turned on its head, I think he's really rather clear. I don't know if you found this evening my exposition was obscure. I hope not. I think Blake is exactly what, what this time needs, both in this country and in America and perhaps elsewhere. He is, in fact, uh, giving exactly the, the same teaching as you would get from uh, Buddhist or Vedic teachers. He has a different language, but the essential uh, teaching is the same. Or indeed, I suppose, if you look to the roots of Christianity, he is right in saying that Jesus was teaching the imagination. Uh, uh, anyway, that's what he says, and it's certainly, it, it is also in Jewish Kabbalah. It's, it's all there in, in all traditions, and the Sufis, everybody. But in England, it, it, Blake is our national prophet. We're very lucky to have him. <laughs> Thank you, Kathleen. I think those words, we're very lucky to have him. It's yeah. a good, good place to start. <laughs>